0: Yeah, that was a big one for me, learning that I am not my husband's Holy Spirit.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism.
0: Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast, I'm Nikki Stevenson and I'm Colleen Tinker. Today in our series on how to live after Adventism, we'll be discussing what the Bible teaches about the family. As with many other topics, Scripture goes against the grain of current secular ideas related to family roles and lifestyle. And for that reason, it's never been surprising to us when we've heard pushback for the things we've said about family (laughs) roles in past episodes, right, Colleen? Right. (laughs) So, in anticipation of more pushback after today's discussion, I want to encourage listeners right from the start to ask yourself a question, should you experience any internal reactions against what you hear? Ask yourself if you're reacting to our opinions or to the words of Scripture. If it's only our opinions you disagree with, that's fair. But if it's Scripture you find yourself reacting to, I want to encourage you to revisit the matter of your view of Scripture. We hope you'll pray about any reactions you may have to it and ask the Lord to help you know what He wants you to know and trust Him with whatever He's asking you to do. Because He does ask us to do hard things. He does. We believe that Scripture is God's Word to us, that it's trustworthy, without error, and authoritative in its instruction, and we'll be speaking from those foundational assumptions today. Transitioning from an Adventist view of Scripture and of the family to a Christian view of Scripture and all it instructs takes time. It's often startling, <laughs> and it always <laughs> demands trust and faith in the goodness of our Father. Even so, the words of Proverbs 3, 5-8 through remain true. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Before we get started, let me remind you that we always love hearing from you. Write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read current and past online articles. Sign up for weekly emails containing new material every Friday. And you can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Colleen, are you okay. ready for your question? <laughs> oh, sure. I want to know how much your views of family roles have changed since leaving Adventism and becoming Christian. A lot, really, a lot. But it was gradual. Mm -hmm.
1: And it began actually with going to women's Bible study at a Christian church where Elizabeth was leading. This was, oh, 20 years ago now. And sometime after I started attending women's ministry, she graduated from Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Chicago with a doctorate. So she was clearly an educated and bright woman, very articulate with a gift for teaching. And I had never witnessed an Adventist with a high level of education and a large audience that was so feminine. And I know that probably sounds trivial and like, how do you know other women weren't feminine? But what I mean is, I had worked for years with women associated with progressive Adventism in Loma Linda. And Elizabeth was unique because, number one, she was educated, but number two, you know, she would have her nails done with colored polish. She wore her hair curly and kind of soft, and not because she was trying to present an image, just because she liked it and she didn't always wear the sensible shoes or the formal pumps. Um, She wore comfortable shoes and jeans, even. It was interesting for me to watch her stand up and command an audience and speak articulately and handle the Bible so well, and yet look feminine, like Mm -hmm. she wasn't trying to be the best she could be in a man's world, which is kind of... Where I had grown up, you know, powerful, educated Adventist women needed to look like all business and like they could do anything a man could do. Not that they had to look, quotes, masculine, but they couldn't look super feminine because it would detract from that strong image they wanted to portray. None of this was spoken, of course, it was kind of absorbed. That was my first stun, if you want to call it that. But going on from there, as I began to study scripture, I began to realize that God had very clear directions for family that were very different from the manipulative Adventist families I understood from my past. And I know that that sounds like a generalization, but Nikki, in talking with women for the last 20 years, in talking with men for the last 20 years, dealing with people leaving Adventism I know I'm not unique, and I know that the manipulation I experienced on the part of Adventist wives, the kind of disengagement and passivity even that I would see in a lot of Adventist men, Mm -hmm. the duplicity, the lack of reality, I learned very well to live in a sense of not really seeing what was there because I wanted to see the best, I wanted to believe the best. And I was supposed to not let anybody see what the truth was. I was carefully instructed, in fact, as a child, never tell anybody what we say at home, never tell anybody what we do at home. But then in public, I was also instructed I had to make the family look good. Mm -hmm. I had to uphold the family name and reputation and my life and my actions in public we're going to reflect on the family. What we wanted it to look like was more important than what was really there. At least that was my experience, and I watched it in a lot of other people as well. So, I now see that God calls us to have integrity to be truthful, and that He really does give us roles, and it makes a difference that we're in the New Covenant. And as an Adventist, I wouldn't have understood that. Mm -hmm. So, the New Testament commands for family and wives and husbands, those aren't really given until the New Testament, and there's a reason. The born-again experience with the indwelling Holy Spirit, the completed atonement, makes a new reality. And we can live in a
0: different way, but who knew that as an Adventist? So, what about you, Nikki? You know, I like that you started with your first reaction being exposed to Christian women in a Christian church, because I had forgotten how startling that was until you shared that. I remember my first Mother's Day in the Christian church, listening to the way that the men would celebrate women, and it wasn't flattery. right? They really meant it, and they really respected and upheld the role of women in the church. Whether you were a mother or a woman who'd never born children, but you were a mother in Israel, they called them. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling just loved and respected and protected and cared for by men I'd never even met. And then again, being in that same women's Bible study with you and being around those women who were truly enjoying themselves. And by the way, they were eating chicken off the bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But But in their conversations, they would talk about their desire to honor their husbands and care for their children, and they were real. And it was just something that I hadn't seen before. They were willing to talk about the vulnerable aspects of life in the family as a woman and their desire to honor God in it. That was something that was really neat for me to see, That the relationship, the interaction between the brothers in the church and the sisters Mm -hmm. in the church and in the marriages and the families. So as an Adventist, I came from a broken home, and I feel like a lot of my experience with family was observing, Mm -hmm. observing other people's families, and even sometimes feeling like a guest in my own family. There was a lot of back and forth with custody. But what I noticed across the board is that it appeared to me that women led spiritually. Definitely. I grew up with that sense as well. And I have to say, it didn't often seem like a real deep spirituality. It seemed like a checked off box or maybe managing religious social calendars. You know, mm-hmm. so-and-so has to be in choir on this day. We have to make this happen. We have to be at church. We're serving on this committee and just sort of driving the machine. Yeah, And then everyone else sort of falls in line. And, and the men I often saw just sort of towing the line and keeping the wife happy and sort of, they knew how to play to the image. I got the sense they were the ones you went and shouldered up next to when you kind of wanted to laugh about what was going on. Does that make sense? So there was a facade that I saw everybody playing to. And as long as that was intact, as long as the public saw something put together, everything was okay, no matter what was going on behind closed doors. And just like you, what happens in the family stays in the family. You don't talk about the family outside the family. Yeah. And then the reality was you talk about the family inside the family for sport. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> yeah. that was sort of what I saw, honestly, in all of the families that I was able to be close enough to to see behind that, that curtain. I'm not saying that's unique to Adventism that might be the world out there at large, but there was definitely a need to hold together a system and a look and an image. And that drove a lot of what went on in the week and in the home. In fact, that
1: reminds me of a family that I knew. My sister and I went to school with the daughters. We liked the daughters. We carpooled. I remember carpooling with the older daughter and a cousin of mine and another Adventist person. Her father was not Adventist, but her mother was a very observant Adventist. And it was interesting because that family, just like the ones you described, just like the ones I remember, didn't really talk about anything that happened behind closed doors. But there was a perception that because the dad wasn't Adventist, that family didn't quite reach the social standing of those where the father had an employment in Adventism or at least was Adventist and showed up at church, there was a distinct but non-articulated judgment placed on that family and on those girls because they were (laughs) half-breeds, wow half Adventist, half not. And it didn't matter that they went to an Adventist school, their dad wasn't Adventist Mm -hmm. and it couldn't quite measure up. And you just kind of feel bad for them, huh? I did, yeah. I really liked her. I'd chat with her. I'd talk with her. She was one of the people I'd call on the phone, you know, but she was never able, even in my own head, to measure up to other people because she didn't quite have that social position.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're taught so many different kinds of social politics that right. that we have to unpack. You know, we've talked about the bite model before and how Ellen White and Adventism touched every area of our life. And even in social structure, we have to unpack all of that, how we view each other. I know it's been a wonderful thing to have the freedom to view every person as an image bearer. I right. didn't get that as an Adventist. No, I didn't either. I mean, I would say it, but I didn't get it. And you know i think we're taught in adventism everyone i saw i know i can't speak for every adventist and so there may be someone listening saying it wasn't like that for me but my experience was that everyone was taught duplicity yeah i had a very secular upbringing with my mother mm-hmm. and my dad was very adventist they were progressive adventists and what was fascinating to me was that my my friends who came out of the public school system who were in families who were not adventist who didn't even know what adventists were They got in far less trouble Mm -hmm. than some of the really good, clean-cut-looking, well-placed Adventist kids. Oh, isn't that the truth? Who knew how to get away with stuff. Yeah. No one would ever believe they'd ever do anything like they were doing. Oh, right. So, they were taught that duplicity, not just to be duplicitous, but to do it very well. Mm -hmm. And they learned how to get what they
1: wanted. And it would translate into not only manipulative kids, but then they grew up and they'd become
0: manipulative spouses. (laughs) You're taught from infancy that this is what you see happening. This is what people are saying and doing and how they're behaving in front of other people. And it's different. And to some extent, we all struggle with that. Sure, We all struggle with some element of that, but we're talking about a systemic inbred, everybody's playing their role from one family to the next kind of situation. Now, it's interesting to me as a born-again believer now for
1: over 20 years and reading more and more of scripture, the older I get, (laughs) it's interesting to me that there are certain things about the Bible that are very clear that I did not learn as an Adventist. And these things are often about family and Mm -hmm. about the roles we have as men and women That's something that the world doesn't like to discuss or maybe even misinterpret or completely reinterpret, but Adventism often reflects the values that are in the culture. And I didn't understand as an Adventist how much the secular culture affected the way adventism functioned. Yeah me either. And I'm seeing more and more how true that is now. You know, I recently heard a podcast where one of the people on the podcast, I can't even remember his name, he was a guest. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage. And I had never thought of that before. He said it begins with Adam and Eve and it ends in Revelation with the marriage supper of the lamb. That's really cool. And when you think about that, It enforces and illustrates something that I have come to see, which is that Scripture has given humanity marriage as a shadow of something eternal and real, which is Christ and His church. It's not that God told us that Jesus is like a husband to the church so that we would understand how to do marriage. It's the other way around. He gave us marriage as a shadow of an eternal reality between himself and his people. Starting from that position makes me understand what the Bible teaches a little bit better. And you know, Nikki, we have Adam and Eve, and the next thing we have after their marriage in Genesis 2 is Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? The fall. Yeah. And everything changed. And I think it's interesting. I think that if we're going to talk about family, we have to start there Mm -hmm. and then see what happens in the new covenant, because we're living on the other side of the cross. We're not Israel. So, in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19, we see God delivering the consequences for sin. First to the serpent, whom he cursed, by the way, then to the woman, and then to Adam. And it's interesting that it doesn't say he cursed the woman or that he cursed Adam. He cursed the serpent and told it it would crawl on its belly because it had sinned. But then to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, that's the ESV. In the NASB, it says, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. But either way, there's a conflict between the, the woman and the man in the marriage mm-hmm. where the woman is desiring something from the husband and the husband is executing authoritarian power. Then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, which I find really interesting because it's not Adam he curses, but it's the stuff Adam is made of Mm -hmm. that he curses. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field." by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. So, what I find really interesting here is that there is clearly some sort of relational difference that occurs in the marriage as a result of sin. And this is the state of natural man. I mean, we learn in in the New Testament that we're born dead in sin by nature, objects of wrath, condemned until we believe, John 3.18. And that natural state of being dead in sin spiritually is that women desire their husbands or desire power over them, How whichever version of that one wants to take, and that the husband will rule over her and that her childbearing will be painful, and that men will just spend their lives fighting the world for their living, and then he will return to the dust of the world. So, that's the natural state of sinful man. In the New Covenant, we're given Jesus' resurrection life, eternal life. We're indwelt by his Spirit, and we're given new commands for marriage in the New Covenant because it wouldn't work
0: until we had the life of Christ. You know, part of the curse was that Adam was going to have to work really hard for his stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And in the new covenant, we're told, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. The Lord knows what you need. Your Father in heaven will give you, He'll provide for you what you need. And the work that we're given to do, according to Ephesians 2, our works prepared in advance uniquely for us to walk in that's
1: right that's really an interesting point because even though the new testament says he who does not work does not eat mm-hmm. there are direct commands against idleness mm-hmm. there is the sense that as born again believers our work even our daily lives work mm-hmm. is given to us and prepared for us by god for his glory that's different that's an undoing of that curse. Mm -hmm. Understanding that, I think, is something that we have to consider when we realize how different the male-female relationships are and the parent-child relationships are in the new birth than it was in the old life. And I say this and I kind of camp on it because of what a shock it was for me. And I know that people who grow up in Christian homes don't always see this kind of contrast because they had some sense of Christianity and and a New Covenant framework, if they were fortunate in their upbringing. But for us, Nikki, who came out of an overt, deceptive religion that really is a cult, it's as different as night and day. And I've had to get used to the idea that what I considered in Adventism to be repressive uh, patriarchy is not that in the New Covenant. But the world may call it
0: that, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like that at all. And there's reasons for what God tells us. Yeah, what I once thought was weakness, I now understand to be great strength. To obey God's command to to live out my role in my marriage requires a lot of strength and trust in Him. You know, there's
1: two passages, Nikki, that we've talked about so much over the years that I think are my go-tos for trying to learn to live as a godly woman in a marriage and also understanding what my husband's role is in a godly marriage. So, should we just start by looking at Ephesians 5? Yes. And then we'll move to the one that you often mention to me, which is? First Peter. So, let's look at the Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 passage. If you've listened to our Ephesians series, you've heard us talk through this some. Mm-hmm. We're just going to go there, though, because this is a key in understanding how to live in the family as a born-again Christian. And you know, Nikki, we're women, so we have to speak from our perspective. Mm-hmm. But we also see what 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 it says to the men, and we can talk about that. So, don't think I'm trying to tell men how to be husbands, but I can comment on what I read in this passage, and I can also talk about how it's affected me
0: to ask God to show me how to live this way. Do you want to read the passage? Sure. So, this is Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's so interesting in this passage that um,
1: Paul kind of commands the men and the women to do the things that are more natural to the other one. Men, love your wives. And wives respect your husbands. And I think women just kind of naturally smother with love. And men tend to be more egalitarian and respectful and admire things. But he's asking women to respect their husbands and husbands to love their wives, which would really require trusting God. In this passage, the thing for me, of course, is that word submit. How did you understand submit as an Adventist? Do what you're told. Yeah. But what does it mean in this
0: context? How do we submit as to the Lord? We allow our husbands to lead us. We follow their lead. We entrust ourselves to them and their care. And that is a new thought. Mm -hmm. And it took some learning for me
1: to start internalizing that. And it's interesting because sometimes... Just because, you know, I'm human and still have a mortal body with the law of sin in my flesh, sometimes I have to actually ask God to show me how to trust Him and honor Him, God, while honoring my husband. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean let Him lead me off a cliff of destruction, but it means trusting God that He has given me a husband that is leading and I can follow His lead. And that leading is such an interesting thing. Did you experience Adventist fathers and husbands leading? No, I didn't either. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some that do. I personally didn't know any because the women always kind of took the reins. Mm -hmm. And I remember my mom telling me as a kid, well, your dad may be the head, but the neck turns the head. (laughs) And I look back at that and think that was so manipulative, but she was by no means unique.
0: Mm Mm-mm. You know, I, I asked my husband about this as well, and he said that, you know, of course it varies in different families across Adventism, but what he noticed was that marriage didn't seem well-defined, it seemed miserable, and in general, husbands and wives were more about working around each other than working together. Interesting. And then being a man himself, he was more exposed to the husbands and how they were talking When their wives weren't around Uh and and what was going on. And he was very aware of the resentment that was involved in the women leading. And I'll tell you, being a woman and being exposed to the women in Adventism, I was aware of women resenting that their husbands weren't leading. Yes, And they weren't doing what they were told. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's always been hard to me to think of submitting to my husband as the church is to submit to the Lord. That has felt like a really big ask, and I've had to think about what does it mean for the church to submit to the Lord? Who is the Lord in the context of the church? When you take the time to kind of break down the example— The Lord is the one who died for us. He's the one who loves us, who sought us out, who called us to Himself, Mm -hmm. and who loves us sacrificially. And we desire to submit to Him. We want to follow Him. When we're born again, our affections are changed. And so, here in a Christian marriage where we're born again, we love our husbands. We chose our husbands. Mm -hmm. We want a healthy marriage. We want good things. So it helped me to kind of think about it that way because honestly, as an Adventist, when I thought of the church submitting to the Lord, it was a very um, distant relationship with the Lord, and it was like, don't make Him mad, right? Don't break the Ten Commandments, right? Don't commit the unpardonable sin, which, by the way, I'm not going to tell you what that is. That's mm-hmm. how I felt. In that. No one told me what it was. Just don't do it. It was a very scary kind of submission. That's interesting. So, redefining that in the context of what I know about my Lord now and what I know about the gospel Mm -hmm. and understanding the purpose behind the text that God wrote this about himself, not about my Adventist perspective of God, really helped me. That makes so much sense.
1: And you know, another thing related to that that I've thought is that if you think about the metaphor of the body that Paul is using here, Mm -hmm. the head— in a body, is not separated from the body. You can't just set the head aside and the body go off and do its thing for a day. You can't separate the head from the body. Mm -hmm. And in that same sense, husband and wife are a unit and we are to think of our husbands as the head who is the leader of the body and also the one that is aware. I mean, the head in each person, it's the head that analyzes and perceives what's going on and can sound the alarm if there's danger and can direct to keep people safe. That's the husband in a marriage. Not that we aren't aware as well, but he is protecting the body like Christ protects the church. And it also says that we don't clean up for Christ as his body. He cleans us up. He perfects us. He makes us better. And he makes us better so that he can present us to himself as a spotless bride. That's the image of the husband in a marriage. So, it's not women just blatantly and blindly submitting to somebody who is cruel and overbearing. It's women submitting to their husbands as to the Lord and husbands being asked to love their
0: wives as Christ loved the church. And that's a really big responsibility. And I think... That might be why Paul tucked in here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul describes the husband loving his wife as loving his own body. This is a very profound union, and unfortunately, too often, people will elevate honor your father and mother above this holy covenant relationship. And it can become something that comes between a husband and a wife, and that's not always easy to to get corrected after our past in Adventism. That's
1: such a good point, because in Scripture, it is the marriage that is the primary relationship, the one that is likened to Christ in the church. And it's the parental relationship that we're asked to leave behind for the sake of the marriage. At the same time, Paul is very clear that believers
0: are to make sure their parents as they age are cared for Yeah, and honored. And what's very clear here is that when a husband clings to his wife and when he leaves his mother and father to do that, that's not an act of dishonor. Not at all. In fact, if that's actually done, what
1: really ends up happening, and I say this as I look back at the way Richard stood beside me during the last years of my mother's life, what really ends up happening is that the parents get two, not one, but two children, adult children who care for them. It's an addition, not a subtraction, and everybody's cared for more appropriately One thing that I realized is that Christ and His Bride are described as a body, which is an organism, you know, an an undivided organism that has parts that work together. And if you think, if you ever took physiology— And you learned how even the unseen organs are all interdependent. The circulatory system feeds the digestive system, which feeds the muscles and the musculoskeletal system. And there's nothing that can be separated from the other. But if there is a problem, let's say there's an autoimmune problem. And I think, for example, of my mother-in-law who died with a really serious case of celiac disease. If there is an autoimmune problem... It affects the health of the entire organism, and special care is required. But let's say that she's out in public going to church. Nobody can tell she has that autoimmune problem, but it's a serious threat to her health and needs special attention. If in the body of Christ, the marriages of the members of that body are not functioning well, it does hurt the body, even though the public may not be aware of it. But there is a malfunction that's going on that's affecting the body. Now, Christ the head is not going to let us go or cast us out if we really are His, even if we're not functioning well, but He will deal with us and He will remind us of His will and His word because we don't only hurt ourselves and our kids, we hurt the whole body when we don't function well and we bear
0: the name of Christ. And that's really highlighted in Scripture when you look at the qualifications for elders. That's true. Their family relationships play a role in their qualifications. And these are the people that are being asked to shepherd the sheep of the flock to
1: care for the body of Christ in a leadership role. And their family relationships affect the quality of their leadership, even their ability to see the problems and to lead right. So, this kind of brings me to the next passage that you mentioned, Nikki. Could you read this passage and let's talk about it? Because this has probably been
0: one of the most profound in helping me understand what God asks of me as a woman. This begins in 1 Peter 2, and it goes into chapter 3. Verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continuously strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This passage has been really important to me in my life as a Christian. Coming out of Adventism and out of the backgrounds that my husband and I both came out of, Mm -hmm. we've had a lot of stuff to learn and to work through in our marriage and in our life as believers. And I remember the first time I read this and really saw it, and I just sort of felt alone in my struggle and alone in (laughs) my suffering. And I read this, and Peter's bringing to mind the gospel. He's he's pointing to Jesus, and he's showing us that in all of the suffering that he endured, the one who had the right to utter threats didn't. That's true. As as just as he was, as much as he did not deserve anything he was experiencing, he didn't utter a threat. He entrusted himself to God, who sees and judges justly and righteously. Now, I'm not saying all of my perceptions during my struggles have been accurate and that I was innocent and I need, <laughs> but I certainly had my thoughts, you know. right? You, you, could, you encounter these issues and you think it's just not your fault. and Absolutely. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you, you don't see your part in it. But even Christ, who really truly didn't have a part in our sin, He gave us an example of how to suffer. In the middle of it. And He told us here through His Holy Spirit and by Peter's pen that we are in the same way that we are to endure what we suffer. No matter how we perceive it, we endure it, we submit to our own husbands, Mm -hmm. and we endure it in trusting ourselves to God who sees and judges justly. That's huge. And the fact is that this is asking wives
1: to suffer in their marriages in the way Jesus suffered. I mean, that's actually the comparison he's making. And I'm not saying that marriage is a place of suffering, but every single close relationship we ever have has rough edges that we have to work through at some point.
0: Everyone. And remember, Ephesians 5 said that the husband's Wash their wives with the word. I mean, they compared it to Jesus washing us and sanctifying us. We are sanctified in our marriages. And we know that sanctification brings suffering. It does. It doesn't mean we're victims, but we are internally struggling and suffering as we're growing and learning. Yes. And I I know that for me, one of the things has had to be giving
1: up a perception, which was not based in anything of reality, but in more of a wish or a fantasy. (laughs) I had to give up my perception that a marriage was supposed to be someplace where I would be treated like a queen. Well, maybe, maybe sometimes, yes. (laughs) But the point is, I am a human being with sinful foibles, and my husband is a human being with sinful foibles, and God is asking us to live together in mutual peace and respect, working through this with the help of his spirit and not give way to retaliation or to manipulation or to passive aggression and hurting the other. He's asking us to trust him as we walk through these things. Now, again, I'm not talking about outright abuse. I'm not talking about beatings or child molestations or things that would break the marriage vow. I am not talking about abuse where you have to leave to stay safe. I'm talking about the normal ins and outs of two people trying to figure out how to do a life together when they have different expectations sometimes
0: and different trigger points from their own past. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you're upset and you feel slighted and you feel misunderstood and you feel that you are suffering under this you want to make sure that he understands this because <laughs> yes. you want to fix it how else do yes. you fix it but we're told here Jesus didn't utter threats that's right he didn't revile in return right he didn't self-justify he, he, that's big for me yeah so we're told here that we entrust ourselves to god Who sees. Who sees. That's a (laughs) comfort. Uh (laughs) We entrust ourselves to God and we let Him deal with it. And we do what He asks of us, which really ultimately means we're submitting to Him. Yes. It's God we submit to. And so, as we continue to live with our husbands, seeking to be respectful, seeking to be gentle, Mm -hmm. And this quiet spirit thing bothered me because I've got a strong will and I didn't know what that meant. Was that like be seen and not heard? But that's not what that means. No, it isn't. It's a spirit that's at rest in God. It is. It's about knowing who I am
1: in Christ. I have an identity as the daughter of God. And when I know that, I don't have to defend myself in front of my husband. And sometimes I have even had the thought in some of my stronger moments, (laughs) that I have to be quiet and step aside so that I'm not muddying the water with my emotion, and then God can deal with my husband. Because ultimately, God will deal with my husband because he promises he will, just like he deals with me. Mm -hmm. And I
0: have to get out of the way and trust him. Yeah, that was a big one for me, learning that I am not my husband's Holy Spirit. (laughs) you know what? I would really rather not be His Holy Spirit. I like the fact that God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, is His Holy Spirit and able to do what I can't even imagine needs doing. But Adventism taught us that
1: women pretty much had to lead the family and make sure everybody was spiritual and right everybody was being good, everybody was doing the right thing, and I learned that my job was to manipulate and be the Holy Spirit in a manipulative way, and that's not my job at all. God can deal with my husband much better than I can, and my job here is to be like Sarah. Now, I find this to be a very compelling thing to me. Because it said she submitted to her own husband and called him Lord. That's a small L, Lord. (laughs) But what I find so significant about that is not that she would hold out her hand like Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew and said, Here is my hand, may it do you ease. No, that's not what she's doing here. She is. Allowing God to take care of her. Because when I think about what did Sarah do, how did she submit to her husband? God called Abraham out of Ur in Genesis 12. And it doesn't say that God called Sarah to go with him, it doesn't say that she had to sign on to the plan. It said God led Abraham out of Ur and he took his father, his brother, and his wife. She submitted to him in that, recognizing that God was leading. Now, They got farther along. They got into Egypt. Twice, Abraham sent Sarah into a harem. Once with Pharaoh, once into Abimelech. And we don't know what Sarah said to him, but the Bible doesn't tell us that she fought and screamed and defended herself. But she clearly trusted God because in both cases, God sent plagues on (laughs) the household of the leader whose harem she was in. And those leaders reprimanded Abraham. And you remember what he had done. He had told Sarah to represent herself as his sister, which wasn't a complete lie because she was his half-sister. He thought if she represented herself as his sister, they wouldn't try to kill him to get his beautiful wife. Mm -hmm. Well, it backfired. They took her, but God protected her. And she apparently submitted to Abraham and played that lie out. Not that I'm recommending that we lie for our husbands either. But the point is, she allowed God to defend her. And that is the model that Peter now in the New Covenant uses, that we're to be like Sarah. And here's the bottom line. It wasn't so much that she let herself be misused or sent to a harem. I think clearly God would ask us to speak up if (laughs) somebody tried to do that to us. But here's what it says she did. She did not fear anything fearful. And that is the sticking point for me. Because when I have great resistance to my husband, there's usually fear underneath, fear of loss of something, fear that something will be done I don't want or that I don't like or that I can't manage. And if I remember that God is my Father and He's promised everything I need and He's promised to take care of my husband, I can trust Him and be
0: silent if I need to and let God deal with my husband and He will keep His promises. He will. (laughs) So, Colleen, what do you think about this weaker business? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't like being referred
1: to as weaker when I was an Adventist because I really was taught that I could do anything a man could do, Mm -hmm. except somehow I knew that didn't include sports. But anyway, (laughs) the fact is, physically I am weaker. And you know what else? Emotionally, I think women are wired to be cared for. I mean, after all, if God set up the family so that women have the babies and women do the work of new life, of pregnancy and delivery and bringing those lives into the world, someone has to look out for them when they're in those vulnerable positions. And you know, the vulnerability doesn't just end there. There is an emotional vulnerability to a woman, partly because she's physically weaker, partly because of the roles that she has. And we need someone to
0: see that about us and to make sure we're safe. Which fits very well with the picture of Christ in the church, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, I was thinking about it as we were preparing for this podcast, and it's interesting to me that James talks about religion that is pure, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress, Those are two vulnerable groups. We don't see him saying, look after widowers. It's interesting. Certainly, he wouldn't say, you know, cast out the widower. No, (laughs) But the command is to look after the vulnerable. And women really are more vulnerable than men. It's true. You know, when you think about the roles...
1: God gave women the role of motherhood, and he gave fathers the role of fatherhood, calling himself our father. It's interesting that he even uses that family designation for himself toward us and toward his son. But the interesting thing is those roles really are different, even though the object of their affection and care is the same child. But the roles are different. Mm -hmm. While we were preparing for this podcast, it was interesting, Nikki, hearing you talk about the difference in the role. It reminded me of one of the ways I look back at my life and I can see that difference played out. When men have to play the role of a mother, for example, in the case of a single father, Mm -hmm. or when a woman has to play the role of a father, as in the case of a single mother, it doesn't work as well as when we have a man to be a dad and a woman to be a mom it's just the way the bible set it up the way god our creator set it up and i remember when i married richard and our sons were very young 2 and 6 he had become used to getting up at night if they cried and caring for them it was just natural to him he he would wake up and care for them when we got married it suddenly changed and it wasn't a discussion I heard those children cry at night and I would get up and mm-hmm. it wasn't a feeling of I I have to this is what I have to do to earn my keep now it's my job no I heard a cry and I responded and the interesting thing was Richard never stirred <laughs> And for several years, he had been the one getting up when the crying would happen at night, and it stopped. And I think there's something significant about the fact that God gives women a mothering role. fathers a fathering role. It doesn't mean that men don't get up at night with their crying children. I'm not saying that. I am saying there's a division of labor that has been set up by the Lord, and we see it when we see Christ as the head of the church, the bride of Christ, is the wife of the Lamb, as we see in Revelation. And the lamb makes his church a beautiful, spotless bride. There's roles there. Mm -hmm. And in the way we care for the children within those roles is different and
0: complementary. It is different. And, you know, I like what you said there. It doesn't mean that a man doesn't get up and, and care for a crying child. It makes me think of the fact that we're told Husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Wives, respect your husband. There are different roles, but there are ways in which we come alongside each other and help each other in ways that don't feel natural to us. It's a self-sacrifice to come alongside and help each other in life. And that's
1: something only possible in a really complete way in the New Covenant when we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. When we are able to internally submit ourselves to the Lord and ask Him to show us how to love our husbands for Him, how to love our children for Him,
0: how to be helpful while respecting and honoring the Lord. And you know, when Peter says here that wives are weaker, he's not dissing them. He actually goes on to say, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is an elevation of women. And actually, if you go back and you look at the family structure before Christ, you can see that the gospel, the gospel message and the teaching of the apostles impacted the family system in profound ways, elevating women and children. Fathers are commanded not to exasperate their children, not to discourage them. That's... Amazing, because back then, fathers could put their children to death if they annoyed them. It was in the law. Mm -hmm. It was
1: in the law that a rebellious and stubborn son who refused to conform was to be stoned. That's not in the New Testament. And that's because the law is different, and the basis of the law is different. We're now functioning
0: in honor of the Lord on the basis of Jesus' blood. Further on in Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's where we see that verse. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Not only are they not to provoke their children to anger, they are to invest themselves in bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a big responsibility that's tacked onto that. And I want to point out this command for children to honor their father and mother in the Lord. This command for children to obey their parents in the Lord is a really important one. And actually, it's a gift to these children. I've talked to my kids many times about the rewards in heaven, and they've asked, I'm just a kid. What am I supposed to do to get rewards in heaven, they say, you obey the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the Lord commands you to obey your parents who are in the Lord. And this is an opportunity for them to, in their life, to grow up in Christ and learn how to submit to authority that Christ put in their lives for a reason. So, it's a really neat opportunity for them. But it's also something that I've seen a lot of parents use throughout their child's entire lifetime oh, right, to manipulate yeah. And you know we recently did this walk through Luke for Christmas and I continued reading after Jesus was dedicated at the temple and you fast forward quickly in Luke and you get to the place where they had gone to Jerusalem for I think it was Passover and they went as a group and they left as a group and it was 3 days later that Mary and Joseph found out that Jesus was gone and they had to go back. And actually, it took them three days to find Jesus. And they find him, and Mary says to him, son, why have you treated us this way? <laughs> and I remember reading that recently thinking, hey, she felt slighted. Yeah, She felt hurt. That would have made me feel horrible. But this is God. He didn't <laughs> sin. No. So, just because she felt slighted doesn't mean that God sinned. It helped me understand that I'm responsible to God for what God calls me to do. I'm not responsible to take care of everybody else's feelings. Even your mom. Right. That is such an interesting point, Nikki.
1: Your pointing that out was the first time I'd ever thought about that, that Mary actually came on with a little bit of a poor me victim why have you done this to us? She knew he was God the Son. (laughs) But she had a valid point. Where was Jesus? And yet, he didn't try to protect her feelings in his obedience to his Father. He merely explained what he was doing. And I think a lot of adult children have to remember that. They are to honor the Lord as they honor their parents. And that'll look different in every situation. Truly, it will, depending on what your relationship had been like historically even. But there will be differences. But as long as we are honoring the Lord, we can avoid the pitfalls of these manipulative personal feelings of being slighted. And God sees We're back to that God sees and He knows. And as fallen human beings, still, we will, in our flesh, still do things sometimes that hurt others or that feel like misunderstandings. Yet we can ask the Lord to redeem those moments Mm -hmm. and to show us how to love for Him. Because His intention is not that elderly parents feel slighted. Right, His intention is that we
0: honor Him as we honor one another. And I think it's an important thing to bring up in the context of this podcast because there are so many people who have said, yeah, I'm going to go be with my family for the holidays. I'm going to have to go to the Adventist church with them because I want to honor my father and my mother. But if your definition of honoring your father and your mother causes you to dishonor your Father in heaven, you need to rethink how you're seeing that verse. I agree.
1: One last word before we wrap this podcast. First Corinthians 7 gives us really excellent instruction for people living with an unbelieving spouse, and that is a problem we see often among people leaving Adventism. One spouse will become a born-again believer, and the other one will still be not a born-again believer. But Paul, once again, gives us a new covenant command that would not have made sense in the Old Covenant, and he says this, "...to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him." For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And here, Paul, as an apostle of Christ, is giving a new covenant command, which is very different from the ten, which is very different from the old covenant law, because it's based on the finished work of Christ. We have one believer and one unbeliever, And if the unbeliever consents to stay with the believer, there is a way in which the unbeliever is consenting to stay in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is indwelling the believer. And there's a sanctifying effect on the unbeliever and on the children who are protected from the world by staying in that intact marriage. But if the unbeliever wishes to leave, that's an indication that they're not comfortable in the presence of God, really. And Paul says, let them go in peace. God's will for us is to live in peace with one another, believing or unbelieving. And the believer is the one who is able to live in peace and to let the unbeliever go. And God sees again. God sees and gives us the strength to do and to love for Him, even when we don't know the next step to take. He does. So, as we go through this new year in 2022— and you work your way into these unknowns that are coming along in a world that's behaving in a way none of us have actually seen before, I just ask you to consider if you know the Lord. And if you know the Lord, He will be with you in your marriage, in your family, with your parents, with your children. And if you don't know the Lord, ask Him to show you your need and repent before Him and accept His finished work expressed and done in His death, His burial, and His resurrection according to Scripture. And when you believe, you will be given eternal life and His indwelling Spirit will give you the ability to trust Him
0: and to learn to love your family for God. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read current and past online articles, sign up for weekly emails containing new material every Friday, and you can donate to the ministry if you'd like to come alongside us. You can like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we continue our series on how to live after Adventism. We'll see you then.